Well, you know, we must have been singing pretty hard when Cody had to pull the perspiration rag out at the end of the second song. That's good, though. Good evening to everybody. Let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 is where we want to begin Q&A night this evening. If you have never been here for question and answer night, then you picked a great night to get broke in on because... This evening, I have got three really good, really important questions about the subject of baptism. In fact, I have several questions about baptism, kind of on back order, but I had to trim it down this evening to just these three, and we'll probably, Lord willing, have a sequel uh, uh, to this lesson at some point in the future, uh, and we'll address some of those other questions at that time. But of course, of all of the topics in all of the Word of God, that just seem to generate the most questions, the most discussions, sometimes the most arguments between us and people who are not members of the Lord's body, baptism is probably near the top of that list. Which means it's really, really important for us to be able to talk about baptism, to talk about that from the scriptural standpoint, to give an answer, to be ready to do that, to be able to respond to the various things that people have to say about this crucially important subject. And that's what we want to do tonight for these next few minutes. It's great to see everybody this evening. Had just a great morning of worship this morning. A great afternoon with that Kentucky victory. Hoping we can bookend all of that with just another great period of worship here tonight as we study God's Word uh, for these next few minutes. Let's just jump right in. I want to just throw the first question just right up here on the board. Appreciate just the candidness with which the person asked this question. What they asked was, does Mark chapter 1 verse 8 teach that we need Holy Spirit baptism today? Is that what that passage is teaching? And I want you to know that that is a really important Question. And so let's just read here in Mark chapter 1. I actually want to back up and get verse 7. Let's get verses 7 and 8. There the Bible says that John the Baptist, he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, Anytime we start talking about the Holy Spirit, I think we kind of have a tendency to get the squirmies a little bit. And when somebody starts talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, well, we just get a full-on case of the heebie-jeebies, don't we? And I understand about that. I understand why we have a little bit of anxiety about all that. Because there is so much said today, and there is so much that is practiced today concerning the Holy Spirit That's just wrong, or at the very best, it's just wrong-headed. But I want to say that we cannot let false doctrines or errors about the Holy Spirit, we cannot let that keep us from talking about the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit a lot. And we need to be able to say what the Bible says, and that includes what the Bible says about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so let's just start by addressing this text here in Mark chapter 1. What exactly is going on here in Mark 1 verses 7 and 8? Well, what's going on here is John the Baptist is preaching. And he is preaching to prepare the way for the Messiah that was to come. And it is very appropriate for John, as he's doing that preaching and preparatory work, it's very appropriate for him to talk about the coming of the Spirit or of the baptism of the Spirit, 
Because that is very much what the Old Testament prophets, what they foretold. Would you hold your place here in Mark and see if you can find the little book of Joel? Joel chapter 2. I usually will go ahead and put my marker on these tough-to-find passages, but I figured I wouldn't tonight. I'll just kind of be on the same level as everybody else. We'll all have difficulty finding the book of Joel. There in the back part of your Old Testament in Joel 2, there is a really, really important passage in Joel chapter 2. And sometimes in order for us to understand our New Testament, we actually need an Old Testament vocabulary. And in Joel 2, God speaks through His prophet Joel regarding the time of the Messiah. And there He says in Joel 2, look in verse 28, that it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh, on your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy, Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. And so, part of the Messianic age would be this marvelous outpouring of God's Spirit. And so when John the Baptist comes along in Mark chapter 1, and he speaks to a people who would have been coherent in the language of the Old Testament, When John starts saying stuff about the Messiah is coming, the Messianic age is coming, to those people in the beginning of the New Testament, to them what that means is that means this right here. It means the outpouring of God's Spirit. The prophets talked about that. And so John talked about that. And really when we talk about the idea of God pouring out His Spirit, that really is just talking about a relationship with God. To be in a relationship with God means to have His Spirit in our midst, within us, to know the Lord and to be known by the Lord. That's what the prophets were talking about, and that is what John is talking about. Now, here's the question. Did that happen? Prophets talking about it all these years ago. Did that happen? Did God pour out His Spirit? Well, of course that happened. God promised He's going to do something. God does it every time. question now is, when? When did that happen? Well, that would be Acts the second chapter. Would you find Acts chapter 2, please? In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus had ascended back into heaven, we read in Acts chapter 2, look in verse 1. In Acts 2 and verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That passage is talking about the apostles. And the apostles, just as Jesus had promised them back in John 14 and John 15 and John 16, They were here, baptized, if you will, in the Holy Spirit. This miraculous outpouring of God's Spirit upon them, enabling them to speak in these various tongues. Now, is that the only time that Holy Spirit baptism occurred? Actually, no, it is not. Would you find Acts chapter 10? In Acts the 10th chapter, something as remarkable as what happened on Pentecost takes place in Acts chapter 10, and that is that the Gentiles... The Gentiles have the gospel preached to them. And as a sign, as a marker for them, particularly probably more more so as a marker for the apostles, to let them know that God is okay 
with the gospel being preached to Gentiles. That God wants Gentiles in His kingdom. We find here there is again this manifestation of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10, look in verse 44. While Peter, he's here at Cornelius' house. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the uncircumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so, right there you go. The exact same kind of event as the event that happened on the day of Pentecost. In fact, in Acts chapter 11, just flip over a page. In case anybody is still failing to see the connection between what happened at Cornelius' house and what happened at Pentecost and how all of that ties back to what John said about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Peter just spells it all out for us. And I like it when there's passages like this. just makes it real clear for dummies like me. In Acts chapter 11, look in verse 15. Peter is recounting those events that had occurred at Cornelius' house. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, Cornelius and his household, just as on us at the beginning, the day of Pentecost. Verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. See how all of that links together, how it all works together? And so the prophets, they promised it. John the Baptist promised it. Jesus promised it. And on those two occasions, in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 10, the baptism of the Holy Spirit took place. Now here's the question, and this is really the question that the question asker was really wanting to get to. What about you and I today? What about you and I today? Should we be looking for, should we expect, do we need to be involved in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I want to say very, very clearly this evening that Holy Spirit baptism is not the norm. It is not normative. And it is not what we should be seeking after today. And I want to say that for three specific reasons. First and foremost, would you step back to Acts 10? Just flip back a page again. In Acts 10, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his household. There's the speaking in tongues going on. It's this amazing scene. An amazing event takes place. Then look at verse 48. After all of this has occurred, verse 48, then Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Whatever happened to Cornelius and his household, Whatever all the amazing events that took place there, it did not change the need for them to be baptized in water. And I want you to know that just as that happened in Acts 10, same thing in Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit baptism occurs, but guess what? Peter doesn't tell those folks, hey, we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. You guys go home, you're saved. That's not what Peter says. In Acts 2, how does Peter wrap up that sermon? Acts 2 verse 38, he tells those people, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. In both of those accounts, water baptism is commanded. In fact, I really want to stress that. Did you notice that? 
that water baptism is what is commanded. You cannot command Holy Spirit baptism. Peter did not command Holy Spirit baptism. He couldn't. The Holy Spirit is going to fall on whom He will, when He will, where He will. I can't go and tell somebody, hey, you need to be baptized in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How would you do that? How how would I even say that? How could someone go through with that? You can't. Water baptism. That's what Jesus commanded. Water baptism. That's what the apostles commanded. And water baptism, that is what is commanded for us today. Furthermore, it's also worth noting just how rare the baptism of the Holy Spirit was. Just just think about this. Only a very few people ever have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember what Peter said there in chapter 11? Look again in chapter 11. Keep flipping back and forth. In chapter 11, look at verse 15 again. Peter says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, fell on Cornelius and his household, just as on us at the beginning. Think about that. Peter does not say that the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius' house just like it fell on Brother Jones at his household last week when they got saved. Or just like it did on you know Sister Jones, her and her family, when they were saved the week before that. That's not what Peter says. Peter says, and he can only think of one other event that even mirrored in any way the events that took place at Cornelius' house. And that event goes all the way back, what, like, like 10 years? About 10 years between Acts 2 and Acts chapter 10? The only other event he can think of is what took place there on the day of Pentecost. And so the Holy Spirit, He's not just fallen on everybody all of the time. That is not the usual pattern of events in the Scripture. The usual pattern of events is Acts 10.48. It's Acts 2.38. People are commanded to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of their sins. Let me give you this third reason. Would you find Ephesians chapter 4? In Ephesians chapter 4, we're told there... That we're actually going to have to go, we're just going to have to make up our mind about this issue. That you can't have both of these baptisms. You cannot have water baptism and Holy Spirit baptism. Because what does Ephesians 4 verse 5 say? Ephesians 4 verse 5 says that there is one baptism. And so we're going to have to decide. We're going to have to decide what is that one baptism that God commands. What is the one baptism of Ephesians 4 verse 5? Is it water baptism, which was commanded and everybody did? Or is it Holy Spirit baptism, which can't be commanded and very few ever even received? Which is it going to be? I believe that if you take all of Scripture, the sum of Scripture, that it becomes very apparent for us today that we are not to expect Holy Spirit baptism that that was a unique and rare occurrence. Most people were not baptized in the Holy Spirit. But all people are to be baptized in water baptism. Water baptism for the remission of one's sins. And I suspect, I suspect that if Mark chapter 1 verse 8, if that was the only verse that we ever had on this subject, then I suppose we might come to the conclusion that, yeah, I... I guess we do need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But Mark 1 verse 8 is not the only verse, is it? 
We need to read all of Scripture. The sum of thy word is truth, the psalmist says. We need to take all of God's word into account. And whenever we do that, we come to realize that Holy Spirit baptism was something that happened to the apostles at Pentecost, happened to Cornelius and his household. It was God's way to signify that something giant was happening. Something giant happened at Pentecost, and something giant happened at Cornelius' house. It was not. I repeat, was not the normal pattern of events that a person saw whenever they became a Christian. Normal pattern of events is the one baptism of Ephesians 4 verse 5, and that is immersion in water for the washing away of one's sins. I hope those ideas prove helpful, maybe not only just making that clear in our own minds, but as you talk with others and as you have conversations, I'll tell you, lots of folks really big on this Holy Spirit baptism stuff the water stuff. I just want to be baptized and immersed in the Holy Spirit. We want to help them to kind of cure and fix some of those misunderstandings in their mind. Well, since we maybe have a little bit better understanding about Holy Spirit baptism, let's talk about another kind of baptism that is often discussed in tandem with Holy Spirit baptism, and that is this. Question number two. What is the baptism of fire? Jesus, or excuse me, that John the Baptist makes reference to in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, or the parallel account in Luke chapter 3 verse 16. We're just going to focus on the Matthew account because it ought to be sufficient for us to answer this question. Look in Matthew chapter 3. This is, once again, this is John the Baptist, and he's doing the talking. He's preparing the way for Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, John says there, I baptize you with water for repentance... But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So we already know, hopefully, what the Holy Spirit baptism John was referring to there, so we're not going to get hung up on that. But what about these folks that John says are going to be baptized in fire or with fire? Even if you don't know nothing about that, just to hear the thought of that, that sounds painful, doesn't it? And indeed, it should conjure up some painful images in our mind. Generally speaking, anytime fire is referred to in the Scriptures, Old Testament or New Testament, it's meant to describe something that is painful in some way. And that includes even this very most common interpretation of the phrase baptism of fire. And that is, many people think that maybe what John is talking about is he's talking about the the fiery trials that Christians have to go through in life in order to build and strengthen their faith. And I want to say, make no mistake about it, that is absolutely a biblical concept. The idea of fiery trials that help to strengthen us and make us better. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, I think that's been studied recently here in the auditorium on Sundays, that, as well as several other passages, talk about the idea of trials and adversity and difficulty, how all of that can work together as a refining fire. That yes, it is painful. Fire is supposed to be painful. It is painful and it's tough, but in the end it ends up producing character and it does produce stronger faith in us. And so what some have done is they have taken that concept 
And they've kind of meshed and blended it with the language of baptism of fire in Matthew 3 and verse 11. And they've kind of made this hybrid idea to say that whenever you go through various difficulties in life, that's just God's way of doing a baptism of fire. He's bringing you through the tough stuff so that you can see the great outcome in the end. In fact, the usage of that expression in that way, actually we find that commonly in lots of places in our culture. In the military, the first time that a soldier is sent out to battle, it is referred to as a baptism by fire. They're just having to just jump right in there and they're learning this the hard way. Uh, When an employee, whenever they're learning something on the job the hard way, that's kind of a baptism by fire because they're they're kind of being immersed in that field of employment and all that goes along with it. That usage of that term in that way has really kind of almost become synonymous with the idea of, of initiation. You've got to be initiated. You've got to go through this tough stuff in order to be successful, whether it's in the military or be successful in your job, or in this case, to be successful spiritually. But I want to submit to you this evening that even though the Bible does speak in other places of fiery trials, that's not the baptism of fire in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. And I know this to be true for at least three different reasons just right out of Matthew 3. We'll just stay right here. First of all, let's stop and think about who's John talking to? Who is John speaking to when he makes that statement? Well, if you back up a few verses to around verse 5 or so, you'll find that there is this rather large audience of people. People that are coming from Jerusalem, from Judea, from the area there around the Jordan. And many of those people, they are believers. They are confessing their sins. They are being baptized in the Jordan River. But in verse 7, would you notice, John catches wind that there are several unbelievers present, specifically the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he notices them. And as he begins to address some very pointed words toward that segment of his audience, I want you to notice that what John has to say to them, it ain't good. And it's not pleasant. Look at what he says, verse 7. He starts by just saying, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, Oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able even from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You stop right there. That is a rebuke, isn't it? He's rebuking these guys. This is not a call for these guys to to bear up under their trials and their adversity so that they will be stronger in their faith. No. This is actually a pronouncement of judgment. It is a pronouncement of God's wrath on these people. And I believe that that is made even more clear whenever you look at the verses on top and underneath verse 11. Because when you look at verse 10 and verse 12, verse 11 sandwiched in the middle of there, but in verse 10 and verse 12, John once again uses the imagery of fire. And in those verses, John uses it to describe the punishment the fate of the unbelieving and the unrepentant. And I just don't believe anybody could miss that. Look at it all together. Let's read it. Verse 10, John says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown, where? Into the fire. Verse 11, Now I baptize you with water for repentance, 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 12 now. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Do you see how fire in verse 10, unfruitful trees, they're going to be thrown in fire. And fire in verse 12, chaff, going to be gathered up and burnt in the fire. Do you see how in those two verses, it is very clearly alluding to the fate of the wicked and the unbelieving and the unrepentant? My question then is this. What in the world leads us to believe that the fire in verse 11 is talking about something different. I believe that how fire is being discussed in verse 10 and verse 12 is the same way that fire is meant to be taken in verse number 11. And when we think about that, I know that's the idea of this, this baptism of fire. You know, we always think of baptism in, in a positive way, a good way. Baptism is great. It's when you get forgiven of your sins. Your sins are washed away. It's wonderful. But the word baptism just means an immersion. Think about the fires of hell. Can't the fires of hell be described as a baptism, as an immersion? That there will be people on that great and final day who will be sent to hell and they will be immersed, engulfed, submerged in flaming fire. I believe that is what John is talking about here. I believe that is what fits within the context here of Matthew chapter 3. And I think that's driven home just even one more one more notch, by the fact that what John says there in verse 11, that he says that only Jesus has the power to baptize people in that way. John says, I'm out here baptizing people for repentance and and all these kinds of things, but this guy, Jesus, when he comes along, he is going to baptize people with fire. He is going to send people to hell. John realized he didn't have the authority to do that. I don't have the authority to go around baptizing people with fire. But Jesus does. Doesn't that just plumb perfectly with what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 28? Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus can do that. And Jesus will do that. And so somebody asked, what's the baptism of fire in Matthew 3 verse 11? It is the fire of divine Judgment. Which means then, that is a baptism that none of us want any part of. We talk about the kind of baptism that we want people to be involved in. This one, we don't want any part of that. All of that then leads to this third and final question. And actually, this is a difficult one. This took me a while to to wrestle with. And that is this. How do we respond to someone who says, you know, my grandma wasn't baptized. And so are you saying that she's lost since baptism is essential for salvation as you teach? You know, whenever we have conversations with folks about baptism, invariably this is a response that we do often hear. And it's not just about grandma. It could be sister or uncle or whoever. Just insert whatever name or whatever person in that particular blank. And what we try to do when we do talk to people about baptism is whenever they throw out their various objections to baptism, what do we always try to do? We always just try to point people to the Scriptures. 
We just always try to point people right back to the Word of God. If you're talking to somebody who's real big on this Holy Spirit baptism stuff, what are you going to do? You're going to take them to Acts chapter 2. You're going to take them to Acts chapters 10 and 11. You're going to show them the connection in all of that and how that ties back to what John said about Holy Spirit baptism. Or your conversation may be of a different sort. And so you may take people to 1 Peter 3.21. Or you're going to take them to Acts 22.16. Or you're going to take them to Galatians 3 verse 27. But, but this, this is a whole different beast. This is a thermonuclear warhead. It is a landmine. This kind of statement or question or objection... It's not meant to to make a point and to keep the conversation going. No, this kind of statement is meant to annihilate and destroy the discussion so that it comes to a grinding halt. Because as soon as someone lobs this objection into the center of everything, it does, at least for me, it just shuts down the whole conversation. Because I'm going to tell you, I do not believe that there is an answer. There is no right answer to that question at all. Somebody starts talking about their grandmama or their uncle or their mother or their sister. There is no right answer. First and foremost, because it's not even an argument from Scripture. There's no passage there that you know backs that up or somebody would maybe even twist to, to make that particular argument. There's no passage where we can say, hey, well, let's sit down and let's study that. Let's look at that passage. Let's think about it in its context. Let's look at that a little bit more closer. No! There's not even any passage under discussion at all there. And then secondly, you can't answer that. Because what it does is it forces you to take the place of God. Now you're deciding who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. And I don't know about you, but I am very uncomfortable with that. I'm really uncomfortable with that. That's... That's not my business. That's not my job. I don't know nothing about your granny. And you know what? Even if I knew everything about your granny's life, that's still way above my pay grade. The Lord is going to take care of your granny. And the Lord is going to do right. He will be just and He will be merciful. I trust the Lord's going to do the right thing in her circumstances. I do not want somebody to try to push me or shove me on up into God's chair. No, I'll let the Lord be the Lord. I'll let Him do His job because I trust He'll do it absolutely perfectly. And then thirdly, I'd say that there is no right answer to this because it ends up just generating all kinds of emotion. And that emotion sometimes is so strong that it ends up just clouding and overriding any attempts at reason and discussion and conversation. Let me ask you, does anybody really, really think you know, clearly and with a level head whenever you start discussing about their cherished loved ones, the people that they love so much in their heart, and you're telling them that they're going to burn in hell for all of eternity? you think that's going to help somebody to think real clearly and to you know, contribute something to the conversation? Truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what granny did. doesn't matter what you did. doesn't matter what I do. Passages like Acts 2 verse 38 is still going to say the same thing at the end of the day. Acts 2.38 is still going to say the same thing, whether you've done it or granny's done it or even if nobody's ever done it. Acts 2.38 is still true. It still gives the terms of admission for the kingdom of God, whether we receive it, whether we like it, or whether we don't. 
Now I recognize there are various ways that people do try to to answer that sort of question and good luck. Sometimes what people do is they will come out of Luke chapter 16. You know Luke 16, don't you? Actually, let's just flip over there. Luke 16. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man in this story is a fellow who ultimately realizes that he is lost. It's too late for him, but he does realize that he is lost. He is in torment. And he comes to the realization and comes to the understanding and having some concern for other people, namely his family members who are still alive on earth. And he wants them to avoid that same fate. And so what we sometimes do, we'll go to Luke 16 and we'll pick up maybe around verse 27 there where the rich man says, he's crying out to Abraham, he says, he says, I beg you, Father, to send him, send someone to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Sometimes folks will use that. Try to, to come out of that line of reasoning there. That you know what? If your grandma is lost, then don't you think she would want you to be saved? And if your grandma, if she's where the rich man was, if she really is in torment, then don't you imagine, don't you wish, don't you think that she wishes you would avoid that place of torment? And I do want to say, there may be something to that. There might be. And depending on the person who you're talking to and how well you know them, maybe that's a line of reasoning that you want to go down. But I want to say to you, if you're going to use that, you better do so with extreme caution. Because I am not convinced that Luke 16 or any other passage is going to adequately answer this monstrous and explosive objection that people offer to being baptized. Really, when this comes up, really what that ought to be is that ought to be a cue to us. That ought to be a cue to us that, you know what, we just need to take a step back for a minute. We need to just step back and just kind of reassess this situation. Say, you know, there's a lot of emotion here. And I can sense that this is a really emotional thing to this person. And I realize that if I just kind of just jump into that, I realize I could really hurt some feelings and do some really long-term damage. And I don't want to damage any further opportunities, future opportunities that I might have to continue to kind of work with the soil of this person's heart. So what I need to do is I just need to hit the pause button for a moment. Let some of this settle down just a little bit. And let's see if we can get to a point where they're ready to actually discuss and reason from the Scriptures. Doesn't do any good for us to reason from our emotions and our think-sos about this. This is a matter of truth. We want to go to the standard of truth. I think about a passage like Proverbs 15 and verse 1 that says a soft answer turns away wrath. This objection to baptism cannot be answered with more passages because it's not an objection from Scripture. It is an objection that is motivated and it is full of emotion. And it is liable to just blow up everything and everyone in its wake if we're not careful to give a soft answer. So tread lightly whenever that objection gets thrown your way. Now there are many other questions about baptism. And if the good Lord wills, we will address those questions at a later time. Can I draw your attention back though to... What I preached on this morning, what we thought about this morning. You know, talking about 
hoping to address those questions in the future. We may not ever have that. We don't have the guarantee or the assurance of future time. The Lord gives no promise whatsoever of that faulty idea that the devil is wanting to press into our minds of plenty of time. All we do have is this moment right now. To act on the truth of God's Word that we know to be true and that we believe in our hearts. Look, I'd like to think there's not... I'm I'm, I'm guessing... There's probably not anybody in here in this room tonight who's hung up on Holy Spirit baptism stuff and that's what's holding you back. Or baptism of fire. Or any of the other different kind of baptism ideas that are floating around. I'm guessing that's not what's holding anybody in this building up from doing what they need to do. I'm guessing what's holding you up are those lies that we talked about this morning. The thought and the hope and maybe even the expectation that I'll have another day. Or maybe I'll have another year, several more years, and then, then I'll obey the gospel. The gospel demands urgency. I appreciate Glenn said something to me this morning after this morning's sermon. It can be disappointing, I guess, for some to preach that sermon and to not see anybody walk forward during that invitation song. I appreciate what Glenn said. He said, you know what, that's the kind of lesson as well, but sometimes, sometimes folks need to think about that a little bit more. That there is, there's something so strong about that idea and that seed needs to have a little bit of time to get down in there. And the Lord knows if the seed is getting down in there and I believe that's the reason the Lord allows time to continue on because He knows He knows that people are going to be ready to repent if they're ready to do that. You've had this afternoon to allow some of that stuff to, to sink in. Where are you at now? Any closer to taking action? Sure hope so. The water is ready. I've checked it a couple of different times today. I'm ready. Question is, are you ready? Do you see the urgency of obeying Jesus today? Let's do that right now while we stand and while we sing.